Grand Canyon University makes earning your degree possible with over 130 academic programs for traditional campus students with more than 80 bachelor's programs offered online. GCU provides you with the personal support you need from complimentary unofficial transcript evaluations within 24 business hours to scholarships, academic support, and your GCU graduation team led by your own university counselor. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. Coming up on this week's show is the new Raspberry Pi, the ultimate retro computer. Sega sells its arcade business. And we talk to the inventor of the personal computer, Lee Felsenstein. This week's show is brought to you by Beer52 and ExpressVPN. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 249. Your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And welcome to this week's show, our first one of November. We were just talking, actually, before we started recording. I'm quite pleased that we're doing this at like three o'clock in the afternoon, because now that we're doing the show from home, it is bonfire night here in the UK. You might have heard a few bangs in the background otherwise, I think, tonight. Last night we were doing an interview and Dan was yeah. like, I need to stop. There's fireworks going off at the moment. <laughs> so I had to like do some questions. It was, it was, they've been going off all week though, really, haven't they? Well, there's no big displays happening because everyone's kind of doing their own thing. But it, last night I thought someone was banging on my window. It was that loud. I was like, what the hell is going on? So, uh, yeah, hopefully you won't hear any uh, loud explosions in the background of this week's show. But that interview that we did last night, I mean, my word, we are going to play that out on today's show and what a guest we've got. Now, we have so many different guests on this podcast and I think it's fair to say we've got quite a broad audience as well. I mean, there are some people um, who listen to the show because we talk about, you know, Mega Drive games and Super Nintendo games. There are other people that like the, you know, the, the retro computer stuff, the Amiga and the Commodore 64 and the Spectrum. But also, I mean, today's show I think is really for the OGs, isn't it? Yeah, totally. Like, I love it when we get the computer pioneers and the founders yeah. on. And this week, oh my God, we've got Lee Felsenstein. And he was an original member, a founding member of the Homebrew Computer Club. Now, the Homebrew Computer Club is stuff of legend. This was before yeah. Bill Gates and Steve Jobs actually, you know, became head of the computer game. They were in the club. They were all together. They were all kind of sharing machines. And Lee... We've said at the beginning he was the inventor of the personal computer. A lot of people say that the Apple um, was the first personal computer, and that was also shown at the Homebrew Computer Club. We're going to have the story of that. But Lee has an argument why he was the inventor of the personal computer instead of the Apple. And he also designed the Osborne One, which was the world's first mass-produced portable computer. And it didn't look very portable at the time, did it? But, you know, <laughs> it was, what, what did they call it, a luggable a luggable, that was yeah, it, yeah. yeah. And, you know, Lee is a fascinating guy. He he was part of um, a program called Community Memories, which was mm. based on the Berkeley campus where, you know, a lot of these guys were going with the kind of radical hippie and free speech movement. And he had a machine that uh, was called Community Memories, and it's very, very similar to social media and what we were doing nowadays, but he was doing it back in the 70s. So this is just an amazing interview, and we're honoured to have Lee on the podcast. And there is obviously some great stories about, you know, his peers at that time as well. You know, he, he talks about Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak in this interview, but about Bill Gates in here as well. Um, you know, Atari again, as he, well. Yeah, yes, yeah, Alcorn, you know, he obviously had a lot to do with them as well. So it's like, 
it's really interesting when we kind of go right back to the source. I mean, the Homebrew Computer Club, like you said, the thing of legend in the computer industry today, isn't it? So when you've got someone who was not only one of the original members, but I mean, he was a moderator of all the meetings right until it finished in 1986. So he was a central part of the rise of this entire industry. So it's going to be incredible to get some stories from him. You're not going to be disappointed in this week's interview, I guarantee it. Lee Felsenstein is going to be our special guest in around 15 minutes from now. Now, of course, we are into November. Won't be long until we're all starting to think about a certain event that's coming up next month. How is it Christmas next month already? Obviously, it's going to be different this year, but I mean, still a good excuse to crack open a beer under the Christmas tree. Your little fairy lights twinkling away, Joe. <laughs> Every day. Honestly, my house is just full of uh, fairy lights. But you know what it's also full of? Beer 52. I know where you're going oh, with this. <laughs> is there anything more festive than having a roaring log fire, having the snares powered up and a nice chill beer 52 in your hand? That is Christmas, isn't it? It sounds amazing. I can't wait. Now, we want to give you a free case of award-winning beer. Thanks to this week's sponsor, our amazing mates at Beer 52. Now, all you have to do, grab your phone, come on, treat yourself to an early Christmas present. Have a look at this, beer52.com forward slash retro. All you need to do if you're in the UK is cover the £5.95 postage and they'll deliver this exclusive case. It's actually worth 24 quid right to your door. Now, if you're not familiar with Beer 52, they've been a massive supporter of our podcast for a couple of years now. So, you know, please return the favor and take advantage of this brilliant offer. They are beer boffins who are on a mission to find the best beer anywhere on the planet. And every month they visit a different country and find the best small batch breweries and sample their finest craft beers. And then they carefully create them into a case and send them out to their lucky members. Now they've got 150,000 members around the world at the moment. They are the world's most popular craft beer discovery club and we've all you know we all love beer 52 whenever we have you know events and stuff or we when we could get together there was always a case of beer 52 as well wasn't there i'm doing a little bonfire event tonight with my parents you know in our social bubble but we've got some beer 52 out and we're gonna be sitting there kind of keeping us warm in the winter well, I actually got one of the uh, the perfect wheat uh, German beers that they had last month, and that was delicious. I mean, there really is something for everyone as well. I mean, if you don't like dark beer, you can choose the light option. And every one of them comes with their award-winning beer magazine for men as well as a tasty snack. You need a snack with your beer, obviously. So there's no commitment. Just take the free case if you want. That's completely fine. Try the beer. See what you think. If it's not for you, you can pause the cancel anytime you like. All you have to do to take advantage of this amazing offer and support the podcast is head to beer52.com forward slash retro right then i made a little purchase this week i was going to say speaking of of christmas presents you've (laughs) bought yourself one already haven't you (laughs) i have i treated myself it's funny because i posted this on one one of the retro gaming facebook groups that I forgot my wife was in as well. Whoops. Now, my <laughs> wife is not, you know, she's not into video games. I think there was some reason one time my phone had died and I wanted to post something. So I borrowed a phone and on Facebook and joined this group. And then yesterday I thought, yeah, I've ordered one. And then she just replied with, you know, you know, the emoji with the, the raised eyebrows. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is the brand new Raspberry Pi 400. And I've seen a lot of people in the retro gaming community Getting very excited about this because the difference is, I mean, it is essentially a Raspberry Pi 4, Mm. but it's rejigged and put into an all-in-one case. And this really harks back to kind of the 
the machines of the 80s when you used to get like a, a computer and a keyboard and everything was all internal, you know, like the, the Commodore 64 and the Spectrum. So a lot of people are kind of comparing it to that. When we had Eben Upton on, he was talking about them actually releasing something a bit bigger than a yeah. single board computer. And he talked about the kits as well and how the retail store really helped him release these kits. I think this is a really cool idea, especially for people who are really desperate for a machine. And looking at the components from it, it's basically like a keyboard, uh, old style, like, you know, an Atari would be in there or an Amiga, but it's a sloped keyboard and it's got the components on the inside. Now, for me, the keyboard quality looks really like one of these generic um, kind of keyboards that you'd just get on eBay or yeah. one of these little travel ones. Um, it's not very big. It hasn't got a numpad or anything. Um, I hope the keys are all right on it. I'm sure they probably will be. But what I'm really impressed is by the back, it has the GPIO ports at the back. And, and they're has, exposed. They're exposed. It has them all like, exposed, yeah. 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 So you can attach whatever device you want, like old school. It's a bit like a serial port or something. I really like yeah. the idea. It is. And I, I agree with you there. That was one of the first things that I thought when I looked at it, because I've got several Raspberry Pis in cases. But if you ever want to do anything with the GPIO port, it normally means leaving the top of the case off, doesn't it? Or having wires yeah. trailing out yeah. the side. And it always looks messy. So that was, I mean, it kind of reminded me of like the tube interface on the BBC Micro, which we know that obviously the Pi is heavily influenced by Acorn's machines. You know, Evan told us that when he was on, obviously. Um, and I think, you know, they're kind of aiming this at anyone who wants a low-cost PC. You know, it says he can play games on it, do schoolwork, learn how to program. And they're selling for £67. Or if you want, like, a kit that I've got at home actually waiting for me. It arrived last night. I've got to say, it came in a much smaller box than I thought it would. It's literally, I thought it was going to be like a big shoebox or something, but it's, you know... Less than is it, is it quite a, light? Yeah, really light. I mean, you know, the actual size of it, it's less than a sheet of A4 paper, the box. Wow. Um, and probably about three quarters the size of a piece of A4. It's very small. Um, very light as well. But I haven't opened it up and set it up yet, so I'm interested as well to see what the quality of the keyboard is like. I mean, like you said, I, I think I've got several keyboards like that that I've purchased for like a tenner off eBay in the past. But you've got the Raspberry Pi keys, you know, where you normally get like the window keys or the option key on a Mac. Um, so it's a dedicated keyboard. But of course, what everyone's getting excited about is the fact that this kind of goes back to that form factor of like, you know, the BBC Micro and the Spectrum. It's going to make a great little machine for emulating those computers. You know, you can yeah. essentially have this, can't you, and hook it up to your television. I, I think that's part of it. But to be honest, I think like for the developing world and, and people that really need access to computers, this is mm. going to be it because it's an all-in-one solution. Like. Uh, there's a bit of nostalgia with it, but essentially, to me, I'm not that bothered. It looks like a bit of a plastic, crappy keyboard with a, a mold case. You know what I mean? It's not like the Spectrum Next, which is beautifully designed or anything. It looks cheap and cheerful, but I, I mean, it's interesting you mentioned the Spectrum Next. So I saw that Mike Daly has posted a video um, of him running his Spectrum Next emulator actually on. Oh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a powerful yeah. machine. But yeah. I think, like, you know, if someone was to design a, a more attractive case, it's an own goal, really, because they could put all of the FPGAs in there. They could put the Raspberry Pi and, and make a tidy profit. So if anyone's listening, do that. But, yeah, I, I think the impact of it on the retro community is probably a lot less than on the modern community and, and just getting access to people around the world for computers. 
Yeah, I mean, that's kind of what the project's always been aimed at. Um, but it's interesting that even like the BBC, you know, in, in their article, the first thing they mention is the Spectrum and the BBC Micro. So I think a lot of people are looking at that and thinking, oh, I remember when computers... To me, the only like thing that looks kind of retro is the Raspberry Pi symbol on a key. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, having a symbol that's not the Windows logo. It, it Which looked, is always nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it does look very modern to me. And it, it just has that cheap keyboard feel. I'm going to try and transform it into um, like a essentially a powerful Amiga. Hmm. Um, so obviously it's going to run a lot a lot quicker than my Amiga 1200. And I think just having a device like this where cause I've got like a Raspberry Pi, and if I want to take it like to my brother's house or something, you know, bringing a keyboard and you know, bringing all the, you know the, the hard disk or a USB drive or something, it is a bit cumbersome trying to get it all set up. But I think a little device like this. Where essentially you plug in like a, a USB controller or you know even have it wireless. I think for a portable emulation machine, it's it is quite tiny. Oh, yeah, and like in Corona, if you've got your kids and you're struggling to get setups, you know, mm. you just give them this. They've got Minecraft on it. They've got all the latest browsing kind of stuff, and they can watch videos, do whatever. So you know, it's it's a good solution for lots of different things. I'd love to see what starts to happen with these and the mods and like you know, custom versions that we will get. Yeah, and they sold out really quickly. I managed to get it. The announcement happened uh, eight o'clock, eight o'clock on Monday morning, and I bought mine at eight o two. So I was wow. straight in there this time. <laughs> Didn't miss out like I did last time. I don't now. want another yeah. pie. I've got too many. I'm sick of them by now. <laughs> to be honest, give me a big tower any day. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I think they are getting some more in stock though. So they might be available now. Obviously, I'll link it up in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Maybe the Pi Four Hundred is a bit too big for your taste, though. You want a more portable retro gaming solution. What about the RG280V? Catchy name. This just looks like, to me, just another one of these, like, cheap handhelds, like, you know, SD card, kind of, like, arcade playing, claims it plays N64 and PS1 games, but doesn't really, you know. Right. I, you know, it could be peeing off a few people there. But this aren't, com- aren't we negative Nellies in today's show? We are, aren't we? A little <laughs> bit. <laughs> but this comes from uh, a company called is it, uh, Anbenic. The Anbenic, is it? Yeah, the Anbenic RG280V, um, which has come out this week. And it's coming out It's come out at $80. But yeah, essentially, it, it looks like half a Game Boy. <laughs> yeah. Well, what it is, is they've, they've basically been developing these and they've now got a smaller design. Okay. So th- this is a custom board, but they they're, they're making it smaller and smaller and smaller. <laughs> yeah. And uh, it's quite cool actually because it it does do PS one games. But yeah. The main thing they're saying is the controls are actually pretty decent. You know, on these small yeah. ones, you don't usually get good controls. But the OS also lets you do all kinds of stuff. Like you can use it as an MP three player. Okay. Yeah. You, you can Ooh, nice. use some apps on there. You know, and 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 do different things. So. I think it's got potential to be like a system and the screen looks quite clear. But um, yeah, I've not heard of this company before. No, I've not heard of it either, but it boasts that it's got a 2.8 inch screen. um, And then the actual unit itself isn't that much bigger because it's literally the screen. And then just below it, you've got your buttons and you've got your four front face buttons, the D-pad and start and select. And it comes with a 64 gigabyte internal storage or it could be a, an sd card it doesn't actually say on the description um but it says it's got 5000 games so i'm curious whether those 5000 games i think it was 64 gigabyte yeah yeah that's that, what they were saying yeah i think the 5000 games must be preloaded but on the trailer you know they're running ridge racer on it 
which you looks like it's, you know it's going to be a load of roms just chucked on there. yeah it's just going to be loads of, of it it's going to be loads of roms there's going to be you know seven versions of super mario on there or something like but, that but the price like for, for us dollars it's it's 79 us dollars yeah so it's it's not an expensive one but i've seen so many of these you know say they're going to play you know they can play ps1 and n64 games and when it comes around to it they literally play Ridge Racer and that's it. <laughs> Anything else you tried to play on it, it just doesn't work. So I'm not I'm not convinced. I wouldn't I'm not convinced that I'm gonna ask be asking for one for Christmas. <laughs> yeah. You yeah. know, the look of it actually reminds me of the Nintendo Game and Watch, kind of the, the colours and you've got that kind of brushed metal look on the front as well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, a little right. bit, yeah. I mean the design of it reminds me of the Game Boy, the original Game Boy, like half a Game Boy. Yeah. Or one one half of the Game Boy SP, if you remember the Game Boy Advance SP, if you remember that one with flipped, it reminds yeah, yeah, yeah. me of just the screen of that with the, with the buttons does, on the it bottom. It does look Nintendo-y, definitely. It does look Nintendo. It does come in red as well, um, which I think is the one. I'm looking at the silver one. I think Dan is saying the red one for the Game & Watch. Um, but yeah, it'd be interesting to see some reviews come up. I'm sure some some famous YouTubers will probably get their hands on it and give it a little review. Um, but yeah, it's the the shoulder buttons are saying that are actually quite nice on it. Apparently, you know the L one, okay. L two, R one, and R two. You were mentioning it's, it's, there. to me, they look uncomfortably placed because if you're playing with the D pad, you've essentially got to stretch your fingers right round the top of the screen to get to them. You say that, but it's only a, it's only a two point eight inch screen, so the unit itself is probably only what three and a half inches, four inches. So I wouldn't say that's much of a. Sh- I'm yeah, yeah. It's all right, you, you've got on. manly hands, Joe. <laughs> He's got rock hands, so. <laughs> guitar player hands. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I don't know. I mean, with the, with the buttons as well, I don't know the actual word for it, but like they're they're sideways rather than front and back for the L and R yeah. buttons, which is interesting. But apparently, because of the uh, the L two and R two are more raised, apparently it's actually really comfortable to play. With. Apparently, obviously, we haven't got our hands on them. Um, but yeah, I'm more curious to see whether it actually let's, actually let's wait for Retro plays. Futures video. Yeah, he'll do, much. He'll do a good review of it. <laughs> well. Him and Metal Jesus Rocks will probably do one on it as well. Yeah. <laughs> so you know, the thing that leapt out to me about this when looking through the specs is it's actually um, a MIPS based CPU in there. Not like most of these are like ARM, aren't they? You know, like yeah, mobile yeah. kind of cut down boards. This is the fact that it's running on a MIPS CPU, and you think back, I mean, the, the N64. And the, uh, the the original PlayStation were both MIPS based, I believe. So you know, it probably okay. explains why we're seeing Nintendo sixty four emulation on here. Oh. The fact that it's based on a similar architecture could mean that actually it's got more of a chance of actually running playing, that well. actually running. Yeah, it okay. supports vibrating games as well. Apparently, <laughs> <laughs> what's, yeah, that? Just <laughs> what's that vibrating in your pocket? Is that your iPhone? <laughs> no, it's my RG two ATV. I think they could have given it a more catchy name, if I'm honest. I think I'd have to read it off the off the machine every time I mention what I've got. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Can you imagine just busting that? What's that? Your new Game Boy? No, <laughs> it's my. Uh, I've forgotten uh, it already. My RG, <laughs> my RG two ATV. <laughs> no, but I think I mean, like you said, we do talk about a lot of these kind of portable systems. But I think this one. I mean, when you said as well, Ravi, you can use it as an MP3 player. Yeah, that was one thing that jumped to my. I mean, I've got a bunch of old iPods, but all of them are like you know failing hard disks in them or the batteries uh, only last about an hour or something now and sometimes you don't want you know if your phone's like on low battery or whatever sometimes it's nice to have a dedicated music player so. I, bet, I bet you could probably do video on there as well you know it probably plays mp4s yeah. and stuff you know uh, it, it looks, looks cool. like an open source kind of hackable operating system 
Yeah, it looks a cool little device. So if, uh, if you want to get hold of one of those, I'll, uh, I'll link that up as well. Now, some uh, big news from Sega. It seems every week Sega have got a headline announcement that we talk about on the show. Uh, now, though, they're selling off their arcade business. What's going on here? Yeah, so um, we, we heard earlier how they'd sold one of their buildings in uh, Akha. Akabara, yeah, Akabara everyone's going to tell me off for <laughs> pronouncing that incorrectly. Um, Akihabara, Akihabara. No. Akihabara, yeah, that's it, it is Akihabara. No, <laughs> we, we got a load of comments last time that it, we're all saying it wrong, apparently. <laughs> I've been there and I still say it wrong. <laughs> Akihabara, yeah. Now, what's happened is um, Sega Sammy, the parent company of Sega Entertainment, has announced they will be selling off their arcade business. Now, Sega's always had an arcade business. Mm. It's kind Mm. of like the foundation of their company, really. It was always getting those arcade games out first and then, you know, putting that onto console or, or actually that's probably the most successful division at the moment still, isn't it? But, um, without them creating consoles, but, um, what they're saying here is they were expecting a loss at the end of this year of $191 million, which is due to the pandemic, yeah. uh, people not using arcades, amusement facilities. And, you know, they don't think that they can recover from that kind of loss. So they've sold it off to this other group called Gender. And that's really interesting. It's like they've kind of sold their arcade legacy off. Um, just because they know that's going to destroy them. It's, it's yeah, I, I thought Sega were doing well. And then I saw this, I was a bit like, wow. Yeah, it's, it's sad. It's really sad. And like you say, it's, you know, that must be such a big hit for Sega, you know, to lose that amount of money. And it just kind of goes to show how much they were still making from arcades in Japan. Um, mm. But what's interesting is they've, they've sold it, but they've sold 85.1% of it. And then they're keeping the remaining... Uh, 14.9% to themselves. So they're going to still partly own it, but obviously it's but they won't small. have full control. They won't have, any, they, they won't have full control at it, all. Yeah. No, but they'll be part of it. So I would imagine it's still going to be the Sega arcades and stuff like that. But yeah, yeah. like you say, it com- we covered it last month, didn't we, where their original arcade uh, tower, you know, arcade buildings closed down. So not surprised to see it coming, but it is just a shame to keep seeing COVID just well, kind of destroying all these businesses. What do you think this holds for arcades in the UK? Because I know Arcade Club have opened up in um, Blackpool and uh, it's like I've seen that they've been able to operate, which is good, and that the people are, still seem to be getting numbers. So maybe... Well, not for the next month. Not, <laughs> are, they, are they allowed to at the moment? Oh, no. no, it's no, a full... No, yeah. yeah, they'd be closed as well. So that so, must be a tough, tough business in the UK as well. I think it's it's different in the UK because obviously in the UK, they're not these arcade clubs and stuff like that. They're all independent, you know, they're usually backed by one guy, you know, or a couple of guys kind of, you know, doing it off their own back, buying arcade machines off eBay and kitting them out or doing them up, you know, and then opening essentially a bar with lots yeah. of arcade machines. But in, in Japan, it's, you know, they're still run by like Taito and Sega and, you know, it, they're still, so it, it's it's the big companies which are now taking these massive hits from COVID. It's weird as well because when I was in America, like the pinball machines there, they mm. are obsessed with them and they've still brand new pinball machines being made yeah. with all these new features and magnets and all of this crazy stuff. And that was really blowing up when I was there. And I wonder like, if you could let us know in the comments and stuff, guys, how's the pinball kind of going in america and how are the sales of like pinball units and and the companies you know 
Well, with this um, Sega announcement, I mean, a lot of the comments I'm reading, you know, on Twitter and Reddit, people are like, oh, it's going to be so sad that we, I didn't get to Japan and get to be able to go to a Sega-branded arcade. But they've actually confirmed that they are going to be keeping the Sega branding mm-hmm. on those arcades, which, I, you know, you look at this, apparently this company that have bought it, uh, Gender Incorporated, they're actually an arcade rental business. Okay. So obviously, they're coming into this with the intention of kind of trading on Sega's legacy and the name, I guess. They're not going to want to rebrand them all. Because they're using, losing the main attraction then, aren't they, if, if Sega are not yeah. branding them. The only question we've got is whether Sega is still going to be developing new arcade games mm, and cabinets, yeah. essentially. That's kind of the big question that's hanging over it. I mean, they won't have the physical ones, but they'll develop them and send them out to, you know. Yeah, yeah that's an interesting question, actually. I think, I think they'll still make them. Mm. Um, and then they'll probably just sell them, you know, to the arcade, you know, businesses you know, like like they did in the 80s and stuff like that. So they would probably make, you know, a new game, whatever, Sonic Arcade, you know, probably a first-person shooter or something. And, <laughs> and then they'll, and then they'll uh, just sell those cabinets maybe, you know, produce them and sell them like they did back in the day, but they just won't own, you know, the premises that they're going to and won't be taking the money, you know, from the actual coin-op and stuff like that, Yeah, um, in- which seems to be where the actual money is. Well, interestingly as well, there's another another cabinet that's come out that Dan was showing us earlier, and it's another thing that's going to get him oh, in trouble with his wife. Oh, God. I want this so bad. <laughs> <laughs> so this is an OutRun sit-down arcade machine. Now, this is um, on sale now. You can pre-order it, actually, in time for um, December shipping. This is essentially the ultimate arcade cabinet. You've got Turbo Outrun, Outrunners, Power Drift, obviously the original Outrun's on there too, um, from Arcade 1-Up. Now, this is like the original sit-down seated arcade cabinet that you used to see in arcades in the seaside back in the day. I Not, not the hydraulic one, but the sit-down no, one. Yeah, the yeah. sit-down <laughs> one, the normal sit-down one. I love Arcade 1-Up. Like, they look so, so cool. They're an American company, so it's it's $500, but you can get it shipped to the UK. But we tend to see Arcade One Up kind of popping up in Smiths, which is like the yeah. UK, the new yeah. kind of Toys R Us, isn't it? And I keep seeing they keep advertising that they've got, they've got like the Turtles in Time cabinet and stuff like that. And I just know my wife would kill me, so I'm hoping that Dan does buy this, <laughs> so then Dan gets killed, and then I'll be like, "Well, I'm going to buy one." <laughs> so like, well, you can inherit mine, you know, or inherit like yours. But Ravi made a really funny comment about this. If you got room for it, Dan was like, "Nope, I'll put it in the garden." <laughs> Joe, you can just get it cheap in the divorce, and yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I think I think what's really cool about this is it's, it's like the Star Wars one. It's got the actual sit down part of it, which is really cool because of the thing is with these one I was going to say one K these arcade one up cabinets is they're three quarter scale to the original, yeah. and I'm quite tall, so I can only ever think like if it's only a four foot tall cabinet, it'd do my back in. But yeah, I love this out one, Ron, because you do actually get the seat with it, which is really cool. And, 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 and it looks like the seat's yeah. adjustable as well. Yeah. So, yeah. You know, if you are really tall. It, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. yeah it's, a, it's a separate part, so you can just kind of move it wherever you want. Not like the original way it was all joined together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you but, can store sweets under the seat. <laughs> <laughs> sweets and beer 52. Yeah. <laughs> oh, what a weekend that would be. <laughs> well, that would be a very good weekend. But yeah, you get the pedals with it as well, uh, which is really cool. You get the steering wheel, the gear stick. So, you know, I, I wonder whether, you know, we're talking about arcade club and stuff like that, whether in 10, 20 years we start seeing these pop up in these like arcades yeah. and stuff like that, you know, as alternatives. But yeah, this looks really cool. And they come as flat pack as well. So a little bit different to putting up your desks and stuff like that. Yeah. 
you know, I've seen a lot of comments today that people, you know, especially, you know, in the retro Facebook groups and that people, oh, but it hasn't got a CRT built in. And okay, admittedly, that was a big part of the original experience for me, you know, looking at that that CRT scan lines and stuff mm. on there. And they don't look quite the same on a flat screen, but I, I can see why. I mean, God, this is something they're going to send you in the post. Yeah. The original arcade cabinet is like removal. <laughs> CRT yeah. in the post. The way you said that, they sent it in the post. Like, the postman's putting it through your letterbox. <laughs> what have you ordered? <laughs> it's like one of these magazines where, like, you, you know, you subscribe to it and you get a piece of it each week <laughs> to build. <laughs> I keep missing the postman. It ends up with a uh, dear old Brenda next door. I can't imagine <laughs> taking delivery of an outrun cabinet for me. That might be uh, pushing my luck slightly. So, uh, yeah, I mean, if, if that is a great Christmas present, though. No chance of me uh, asking Santa for that this year, unfortunately. I know, I know I'm going to get knocked back, but I can dream. Right, then, we are going to be chatting to uh, this week's special guest, Lee Felsenstein, in just a minute. One of the pioneers, possibly the inventor of the personal computer. He's going to be on in just a sec. Before we do that, let's give a big thank you to another huge supporter of the Retro Hour podcast, our amazing friends at ExpressVPN. Now, we did mention that as of today, actually, when we're recording this, uh, the UK is back in lockdown again for the next month. Um, A lot of places around the world were spending much more time at home. Christmas is coming up. The weather's getting colder here now as well. So a good time to sit inside and binge watch a bit of good TV. Now, our friends at ExpressVPN let you expand your Netflix library. Now, you may have heard about VPNs before, and obviously they protect your privacy and security, but also this can take your TV watching to the next level because you can use a VPN to unlock movies and shows that are normally only available in other countries. For example, if you change your settings, you open ExpressVPN, tell it that you're in America, then open Netflix, you can be like Ravi, and then binge watch the American Netflix library. Yeah, I've I've been checking it out. And actually, you know, I have absolutely rinsed UK Netflix um, during this lockdown. So ExpressVPN's amazing because there's not any slowdown. You know, it's ridiculously fast for watching these. So there's uh, no buffer or lagging. And it's all in HD as well. Now, the shows I've been watching that aren't available are Chappelle Show with Dave Chappelle, mm-hmm. if you've ever seen that. It's so funny. Uh, the 100, which is a really cool uh, sci-fi series and Snowden as well, which is a, a fantastic film. Yes, I mean, it essentially lets you watch Netflix libraries from almost 100 different companies around the world. That is a fair bit of TV to keep you going for the next few months, isn't it? For example, if you love anime, you connect, you know, connect to the Japanese Netflix. There's so much on there as well. And also it works with other streaming services. Maybe you're based in America or Australia. You want to watch BBC iPlay, you can do that. You can watch Hulu from the UK. Uh, different you know, YouTube videos are region locked. You can watch them. There are hundreds of VPNs out there. But like Ravi said, ExpressVPN, ridiculously fast. No buffering. Stream in HD, no problem at all. And it works on all your devices, phones, media, console, smart TVs. So you can watch wherever you are, even on the go, thanks to our friends at ExpressVPN. Now, we want you to give them a try and help out this podcast, and you will get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. And, of course, support the show by doing it. Watch what you want and protect yourself as well. So all you have to do is nip onto this website right now, expressvpn.com slash retro expressvpn.com slash retro thanks to expressvpn now if you're loving the retro hour at the moment i mean we get comments off people saying oh i wish you guys did like you know a couple of shows a week instead of just one we've answered your prayers yeah we're doing the retro hour after hours podcast and it 
really enjoying it actually because it's it's quite chilled there's a lot more swearing on it um <laughs> you know it's it's <laughs> it's a bit like us kind of just relaxing and talking about yeah. anything technology and 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 nerdy based so uh that was an hour long our last one we've been interviewing each other so first it was me and then we did an interview with Joe, and then Dan will be in the hot seat for the next episode. <laughs> it was good because we recorded it and released it a bit earlier on this week. Um, like I said, we had about probably about a half an hour chat with you, Joe, you know, kind of grilling you on uh, all aspects <laughs> of your life. But we chatted about loads of different stuff as well. I mean, even a bit of modern. I was about to say, we, we spoke a little bit about the PS5, a little bit about the Xbox yeah. Series, Series X. I think that's what it's called. <laughs> Yeah, when we talk about our game collections, what we've been doing, I mean, we're talking about reorganizing game collections and stuff as well, new things that we picked up. It's always, I mean, like Ravi said, it's it's a much more relaxed show. We put the mics up, we chat for an hour or so, and people are really enjoying it so far. You know, it's got a nice vibe, I think. So, And the idea is that there's no real format to that show, so we're going to swap it up and kind of do different things and experiment with it. So if you want to check out our second podcast, and we're doing a couple of these a month at the moment, you can do it by becoming a patron of the retro hour and for doing that of course you ensure the future of this podcast as well you know it all goes back into the running of it it really supports us, helps to pay for all our costs as well and of course you will get a mention in a future episode in the retro hour hall of fame like this week thank you so much to marius anderson web nerd scott mcguire ryan vaughan and hams crombine who all made donations into the running of the show. And if you'd like to do the same, you'll find it right now. You can back us on Patreon at theretrohour.com. Right, then next, we're going to be joined by one of the original members of the Homebrew Computer Club, the designer of the Osborne One, and the inventor of the personal computer, Lee Felsenstein, is our guest next on the Retro Hour podcast. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast, and it's time to welcome on this week's very special guest. Now, today, we are going to be joined by someone who actually played a central role in the development of the personal computer and the industry. I mean, he was a member of the infamous Homebrew Computer Club, the designer of the Osborne One, and much more as well. We can't wait to get all of those stories with this week's special guest. Welcome to the show, Lee Felsenstein. Hello, Lee. Hello, thank you. Now, before we get into the uh, stories of these products that you worked on and these amazing things that you've been part of, I know you were born in Philadelphia. I was actually reading that you and your brother started a computer club in school. 1959. I was a freshman wow. at uh, uh, high school. He was a senior, three years ahead of me, and he was very interested in software. And he had gotten books out of the library from the 1940s on the first computers, and they were... Uh, technical books. And so he showed me some uh, schematic diagrams in the book of flip-flops or something like that, made with vacuum tubes, valves over there, and uh, said, can you, can you can make this work? Can you build this? I had my little basement uh, electronic workshop at the time, which is more a place to hide than anything else. Um, and the, the relationship was such that I really couldn't say no so I said, I think so. And I was then the chief engineer of the uh, club. Uh, we uh, did actually, we probably made some relatively functional circuits. The only problem was we had absolutely no um, professional advice. And Philadelphia was the center of the uh, computer industry at the time. Remember the first, the ENIAC computer was made at at the University of Pennsylvania there, 
many companies were spun off from that. Theoretically, I could have picked up the phone, looked up the number for uh, Dr. Mawkley or Eckert and uh, given them a call and said, you know, we were some high school kids and we wanted to get into computers. Maybe could your company perhaps send someone over to advise us? And of course, as a high school freshman, I couldn't do that. And so we, our circuits worked about 50% of the time. And that's because we had no good concept of clean signals. That is to say, pulses that didn't go up and down and up and down when they're supposed to simply go up then down. And we were using a method of uh, triggering that is simply taking a bare wire and flicking it against a metal contact. And there's no better way to generate a random pulse train than that. Uh, So 50% was about as good as we could expect. Well, obviously, I mean, your passion for computing started when you were young. I mean, you went to college at UC Berkeley. And did you study computing there then? And what was kind of life like? So I know that led you to work for Ampex Corporation as well. Well, first of all, I did not uh, acquire a love of computing as a high school student. In fact, I acquired a dread of computer hardware. <laughs> uh, I was uh, an analog not you know, engineer to be, I'm certainly no engineer then, but, um, I, I became convinced that, uh, this, this digital business was just too, uh, critical, one little error and the whole thing collapsed. And so I decided I would uh, remain with analog electronics. And I did, um, I enrolled at UC Berkeley in the electrical engineering and computer sciences department. It's one department I didn't have any choice in that and uh, signed up for general, the general curriculum, not the computing curriculum. They didn't have much of a computer computing curriculum then. So it was, wasn't until 1970 that I finally broke the, through the barrier. Now that's 10 years um, after that high school experience. And I had become a fairly decent young analog engineer and worked for two years at Ampex doing analog design, high-speed tape duplicator electronics. When uh, I was presented with a choice of either resigning or uh, taking up some tasks involving computers. And that was my entry into the digital universe. By that time, of course, I had, had the opportunity to learn a bit more and, uh, by that time, I knew that flicking wires against clips and so forth was not an acceptable method. So that was uh, the time when I was alone with a mini computer. Because by that time, we, we you know computers came down in size from room full room sized uh, mainframes to uh, desktop size minis, and yeah. um, so I had to learn by reading the manual. Uh, how to write a little program in machine assembler. And uh, my first triumph was printing the letter A on the teletype. And my heavens, that was a triumph. Uh, I, I probably have never gotten over it. So at Ampex Corporation, we were developing a system that could today be uh, handled by a digital video disc, a DVD recorder. But then it took a, a room size mess of equipment 
of course, it was for an entire uh, college, and it was for delivering illustrated uh, lectures to a number of remote student positions, and uh, it was all controlled by a data general Nova mini computer. Now, you can say, well, what kind of Nova? Well, they just had one kind. It was called a Nova. And they then, then began to develop models of it. Um, so that was my first computer. And uh, the hardware design of that, the interfacing to it, which is what I was responsible for, was really terrible. And I have no, have never played with a Nova since then. Well, I had an experience there of being responsible for one of the boards in the system, which was called the tone detector. At any rate, uh, I discovered that we had a serious problem because the master tape recorder, a studio-grade AG440 machine on which the uh, material for our prototype system was recorded, had a characteristic in which it would respond to bursts uh, by temporarily going crazy. And I brought it to, it to the attention of the other engineers. I mean, I was the lowest on the totem pole then. And uh, said, you know, we, we, we have to uh, control this. We need uh, automatic gain control, AGC. And the meeting said, no, 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 just freeze the design as we've done it and, and go on. Well, I persisted and I had a board with AGC in it in development. Finally, they, they insisted, and I froze the design the way they wanted it, uh, which was unreliable. Years later, well, two, a few, two years later, uh, I was standing in front of the desk of Al Alcorn, vice president of engineering of uh, Atari, seeking a job. That was actually 74, four years later. Two years after that event, that is to say 1972, after I'd left Ampex, I went back to sort of jeer at the uh, fellows who'd stayed. Most of them had been laid off. They said, yes, we, we uh, finally found out that we had to use AGC on that design. And I said, oh, well, let me look at the schematic. And I took a look at it, and I noticed the person who had signed off on it was Al Alcorn, whom I'd never heard of. And he was really somebody uh, almost junior to me. He was in the video file division, and that system was moved over there uh, just before I left. Well, there I was standing in front of Alcorn's desk trying to explain, without him asking about it, why he had to clean up that mess and how it really wasn't my mess. Well, he wasn't even looking for design engineers at the time. He was looking for uh, manufacturing engineers, and that was the end of the discussion. And so Steve Jobs accompanied me back out of the office, and uh, I had at the time, brought some materials from the social media system, community memory, that I had been helping establish with the idea that possibly Atari would be interested in this, this social media stuff. Never got a chance to show them to Al Alcorn, but I tried to discuss them and show them to Steve Jobs, this kid wearing a white shirt and a skinny black tie. Um, but he made little side-to-side -side motions of his head, which indicated to me his desire to get out of this situation. And that was my meeting with Steve Jobs. See, because Steve, everyone talks about the fact that Steve Jobs is a revolutionary and forward-looking, but I mean, when you presented this, you know, vision of what the future became, he just wasn't interested then. Exactly my point. But of course, you know, futures are in the future. <laughs> They're not here. 
could we talk for a sec about community memories and the yes. kind of program because that was really interesting it was in the berkeley free speech movement and you know it was massively pioneering as well thank you yes it was it 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 evolved from my experience in the berkeley free speech movement that lasted 2 months in 1964 it was a victory against the unconquerable administration of the university of california which itself had been uh tasked with organizing the atomic bomb project so you know we were never going to win that but we won we won political freedom on campus and that like all revolutions i call it a revolution because it is a mass participation event it overthrows an existing order and it has consequences far beyond uh expected results so the the uh over the order that it overthrew was that of in loco parentis in which the university administration acted in place of uh, the parents of the uh students who at that time were still uh minors the age of majority was 21 well the unexpected consequences was the counterculture and it was amazing to participate in uh to 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 be there while all sorts of things opened up you know apparently 5000 students that by our best guess left the university and went to establish uh communities like the Haight Ashbury uh and I wanted life to be like like that all the time so I pursued the question of as an engineer how could I with the technology I had learned about facilitate this process and that led to my uh exploration in media I joined the underground press for a while and wrote for them and then I, then I discovered that the structure of print media itself was the problem and uh groped about in the the counterculture as it was developing in Berkeley and, and San Francisco so that by 1970 based upon some experience that I'd had when Ampex sent me to learn the basic computer language at a at a uh, service bureau I was exposed to computers on a network which is nothing like network computers today but nonetheless it made the point that a network computer system had no geographical center or presence and you could organize communities of interest through it that became clear to me at that time so i said that's what we want a network of computers and then i straightened up and said but where am i going to get a computer number 1970 where at the time i was being introduced to mini computers so they were you know we were coming together uh in 1971 I had an answer to that question because a group of people had left the University of California in 1970 computer science students these were <clears throat> with the hope of bringing computer power to the counterculture and they had organized the donation in effect of a real mainframe computer designed for time sharing an SDS 940 and it happened to be we didn't know this at the time the very same computer on which Doug Engelbart had run his mother of all demos and of course we were playing in in the pool that included uh well Engelbart at a higher level but a lot of his people and so forth we were in touch with the uh Menlo Park and Xerox Palo Alto Research Center group and so forth and they did help us some of them came up and helped us put that computer up i was the poor fool who had to maintain it without ever being trained how and uh did my best and it sort of worked 
And we um, put together an information retrieval system, and one in which uh, the the index words were not predetermined, and that makes it a more difficult process. In fact, Ricky Greenblatt, I guess at the time he was called Ricky, Richard, a legendary hacker from uh, MIT, had visited us and challenged us to design an information retrieval system in 24 hours. Fortunately, being hardware, I, I didn't participate. But that was the genesis of our information retrieval system. And so we got it together and then we said, okay, we're ready to be a bulletin board online for the various counterculture call them institutions. There were some called switchboards who, uh, whose purpose was to essentially build little communities of interest by uh, being a point of contact by telephone, having little cards, file systems, and so forth. Well, we went nowhere with that. No one was willing or able to spend $150 a month to rent a teletype terminal, which is what you used in that time. And some librarians we talked to said, well, you have, seem to have a uh, a library here, but no books on the shelf. Why don't you put some books on the shelf and see what happens? And a friend of mine who I brought in, Ephraim Lipkin, realized that, okay, we could put some terminals out in public and see what accumulates. And we did that. In August of 1973, we opened the first terminal in Berkeley at the student-owned record store. Uh, it was really easy to get permission to do that from the student government, the student senate. And that was the beginning of the first public access social media computers driven system. Uh, so that's, it's in the history books. You can look it up. Uh, and I've written a history of that that's been published in an anthology called Computer, let's see, sorry, Social Media uh, Archaeology and Poetics. Uh, by uh, an editor, Judy Malloy, M-A-L-L-O-Y, and published by MIT Press in 2016. And, uh, well, when did you become aware of personal computers then? When did you like first see a micro? I encountered the personal computer before it existed. In 1973, there was this computer underground centered in Menlo Park at the Community Computer Center, which was, I called it the People's the Pachinko Parlor. It was set up so kids could come and play games uh, on teletypes. I think it was the, the prime mover there was uh, Bob Albrecht, who published uh, People's Computer Company, really an underground paper uh, for this particular community. So there were potluck dinners on, I think, Wednesday nights, where those of us were sufficiently crazy could get together and talk about what personal computers could and would be when they existed. That's where I encountered the ideas, but we didn't have microprocessors at that point. They were in their infancy, not really uh, sufficient for the task. However, we could discuss a large number of other topics, and uh, the problem I was facing at Community Memory was uh, how to make terminals survive in public. A teletype requires somebody to be present to uh, clear paper jams and things like that. It wasn't suitable. There were cathode ray tube terminals, CRT terminals, uh, or glass teletypes as they were called. And um, they could be used, but they were expensive. And maintenance on them uh, was not uh, really available appropriately. 
So I faced that problem. And at that time, my father, who had become the new ager of the family, sent me an essay by Ivan Illich, uh, who is a Catholic philosopher uh, who had left the church. But uh, he wrote about how people in Central America learned radio when it arrived in their area. And within two years after radio arriving in the remote jungles, there were people there who could fix radios. Of course, they were always there. They didn't go to school to learn that. They learned it on the radios that were there. I had learned radio and TV electronics that way. And so he pointed out that uh, there was a, a dimension that he called conviviality that had to be considered in design. At least this was what I took away from his essay. And I concluded from that that it would be possible to design a piece of computer equipment that could serve as a terminal and grow into a uh, mini computer, uh, which would protect itself by growing a computer club around itself. And so I developed a specification of such a device, being an engineer by then, that's what I could do. And uh, in fact, uh, printed it up and sold the specification for 25 cents among this uh, computer underground. I called it the Tom Swift Terminal, and that's Tom Swift is a boy's fictional character from the 1910s uh, age uh, who was in, con- constantly inventing things, it's sort of a Thomas Edison fantasy for, for boys. And I said, in honor of the character most likely to be found tampering with the equipment, I'm naming it the Tom Swift Terminal. So it was built to attract people, attract geeks to to tamper with it. And not only would it not break, but it could be expanded. So I felt at that time the Intel 8080 processor was just appearing, and it cost a tremendous amount of money. It was $350 for a single chip. And that was in 1973 money. Inflation has jacked that up by a factor of maybe five. So I said, microprocessors, they're too expensive, um, maybe sometime in the future. But I made it expandable so you could add the microprocessors. And in the article I published in People's Computer Company, I had a phrase saying, well, you could add things, maybe even a microprocessor. That's my answer to your question. You know, I, 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 I created the future more or less by inventing it there. And I can't claim to have invented the microprocessor or the personal computer. And I'm putting an asterisk on that because I will tell you later why I feel I actually did invite and invent the personal computer. Well, your um, Tom Swift um, terminal was kind of a, a tractor for geeks. And did that lead to you becoming a founding member of the Homebrew Computer Club? Yes, it did. One of the people who hung around the community computer center was a radical pacifist named Fred Moore. And he wanted to learn about computer hardware. And so he collected names and addresses and contact information from anybody who would listen to him as they came through the door and built up a bit of a contact list. At the time when the Altair was announced in 1975, everybody was was, uh, thrilled by this. And they finally sent a uh, unit to People's Computer Company for review. And that made the rounds of various people. And Moore decided he wanted to organize a computer club around this. And here was his opportunity. So in March of uh, 75, he sent out some notices uh, to his list. Uh, you know, Amateur computer group 
uh, first meeting, met in a garage, and we all looked at the Altair, and we, the question was, what do we do? Now, by that time, of course, I had uh, been through uh, putting together community memory, and I knew that what we had to do was to exchange secondary information. The primary information is what you want to say to somebody, and the secondary information is who it is you want to say it to and how to reach them. And so we'd been doing this with community memory, and we could do it in the garage just with people. So I proposed that we pass around uh, some paper and uh, write down briefly uh, our names and contact information and something briefly about what we wanted to do. Steve Wozniak was there and wrote down that he had designed a TV typewriter, which is something I haven't mentioned, but the first real opening shot of the computer revolution in 73, uh, he had designed his own. Much, much later, I found out he had not even known about the original article that announced it. So we had 30 people there, and uh, I at least suggested, and we implemented the process of collecting our secondary information. We met every two weeks. The fellow in whose garage we met, Gordon French, was a programmer and had built a, a, a microcomputer. And he took it upon himself to run the meetings and try to educate everyone in computer and software. And he would lecture. In the third meeting, he was, he was lecturing from the front. And half the people who had come went outside that lecture room and were trying to meet each other, i.e. to exchange secondary information. I said to myself, this process has to be brought into the main room. And it happened that the next meeting, the fourth meeting, Gordon French announced that he had to leave town because he had a contract with the Social Security Administration in Baltimore across the country. And who would be willing to run the meetings? Uh, my name was put forward and I uh, had my agenda ready. And that is to say, we're going to structure the meeting so that we talk to each other, not me talk to you. And I'll organize it and we'll have alternating map, mapping, that's spelled with an M, mapping sessions, and random access sessions. So in the mapping session, we put together the map of who's here, and in random access, we just go talk to each other, And because now we've identified who we want to talk with. And I thought we'd go through multiple cycles of this, but it never got beyond the first cycle. And that became the, the meeting structure of the Homebrew Computer Club. Quite a bit different from your standard meeting run by Robert's Rules of Order, and vulnerable to politics, which the Southern California Computer Society adopted and which was their ruination. And so we went from there and I was running the meetings of the Homebrew Computer Club right up until the end in 1986, 11 years. Now, that was what Ted Nelson called at the time those unforgettable next two years for the personal computer industry, certainly in Silicon Valley. And our mailing list uh, grew to 3,500 names. We met in a room that could hold 250 people. So you can see there was a tremendous churn, as we would call it, of people going through. And a lot of people benefited from the connections they made there. I mean, you mentioned before that, you know, Steve Wozniak was a you know, a member of the Homebrew Computer Club. And um, we've had John Draper on this podcast before, who's also a member. Um, 
George Morrow, who you know, who's a regular on the, on the Computer Chronicles as well. I mean, what what are kind of some of your favourite memories of the Homebrew Computer Club? Anything that sticks in your mind in particular as a highlight? Well, there was the time when the IBM PC was just announced, and a very nervous computer store owner brought one in for us to open up and perform at least a visual autopsy on. So I and Mark Garretts, who was another very capable hardware engineer, with a microphone, we're starting to identify what's in this thing and pick it apart. And we realized this is unlike anything IBM has ever produced. This is made with parts we all recognize and that we could get if we needed to. And uh, I don't know whether we had the uh, manual for that at the point, which the manual simply printed the schematics and the, and the uh, source code of the uh, BIOS and everything. So we realized that we, IBM, who was the, the, the bête noire, the, the black beast in the background, who was going to come in and, and take it all over as soon as they saw anything worth, ta- worth taking over, uh, we were afraid of them. And so we just continued with our heads down and built our personal computers and wrote our software and now IBM had awoken, and they came up with something which was basically using our methodology. And our big problem with IBM was their methodology. Uh, they held everything far too closely. They uh, viciously attacked anything suggesting a competition. And uh, yet here they were coming out of a garage themselves. And, of course, as we know, they sort of did take over for a while, Uh and uh, everything did change from that point. So I'm really, you know, it was a it was a fraught and memorable moment there, taking the lid off and 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 exploring in that computer. And in retrospect, it was the end the end of one era and the beginning of another. Otherwise, there were several times when a lecture that we a lecturer that we had. Uh, arranged for, did not show up. For a period of time, someone was arranging half-hour lectures at the beginning of the meetings. And sometimes that person wouldn't show up. So what I would do was say, the topic of the lecture is such and such. Does anyone here know something about that? And about three hands would go up. I would call on them and they would recite what they, they knew. And that would stimulate some more people to raise hands with qualifications and yes, but. And, but, and here's, this is another interesting thing. And by going through this process, the audience was able to generate as good a lecture as anyone could have generated. And of course, that tells you where that audience came from. These were not just random people off the street. This was people in the computer industry, most of whom by that time had not had the opportunity to have access to a computer, and uh, each of whom sort of holographically had a piece of the uh, puzzle. And we, we brought it together in those, those lectures. Very happy about those. But otherwise, there's, you know, it, it resolves to some quips. And uh, there was one point when Steve Jobs showed up. Um, 1976, they were finishing up the Apple One. Now, Wozniak had been there every meeting. He came in early with some high school students, Chris Espinosa, and uh, he would work on his Apple Basic. He would claim the only seat in the lecture hall which had an electrical outlet. And uh, I, who was always there, and he never spoke. In 1981, he introduced himself to me at a, at a uh, party and said, you, 
you probably don't recognize me, but my name's Steve Wozniak. Well, everyone knows who Steve Wozniak was in 1981. He said I was too shy to speak. Well, in 76, the spring of 76, Steve Jobs, whom I sort of recognized from Atari, was standing there behind Wozniak saying nothing. Uh, I remember thinking to myself, who is that rat-faced kid who's hanging around with Wozniak and not saying it? (laughs) And, well, when we broke up into the random access session, he came down where everybody poured out into the floor of the auditorium and began talking. He was running around frantically trying to listen in on every conversation. Uh, I think he he attended maybe two meetings, and then there was the final the meeting that where they brought the Apple One and introduced it outside in the lobby on the card table, and that was the event that wasn't very impressive at the time. I mean, yes, they had a little person, little computer, and yes, it did video, and that's nice. But I was at that time I had already developed the video display module, the VDM One, using uh, shared memory. Uh, which meant it would run as fast as the program would run. The video in the Apple One was uh, Wozniak's TV TV typewriter. And that one could only put a character up on the screen every time the video sweep went around, that's 60 times a second. And so you really couldn't do graphics or anything on it. You could just display text. Now, I will claim that it's not a personal computer if you can't do high speed video on it. And that's a controversial statement. Nobody's ever proven that, but that's my claim. So with the video display module in 1975, which derived directly from the Tom Swift terminal design, uh, I had, I presented such video and computer games began to develop from that point. Trek 80 written by Steve Dompier, who was part of, Processor Technology, which is a company that started in a garage I shared with Bob Marsh. Um, He wrote that. And uh, Trek 73 ran on teletypes. And and we waited an agonizing amount of time. Well, it printed out a little three-by-three square of you're in the center and here's what's next to you in space. Trek 80 had an eight-by-eight square with uh, things happening simultaneously and immediately all over the place. And it was it was a real computer game as we know them today, an interactive computer game, I guess you'd say. So um, the shared memory video allowed that to happen. Wozniak with his uh, sequential memory video on the Apple One couldn't do that. So I will claim that the Apple One was not a personal computer. It was certainly a microcomputer. It could certainly mm-hmm. be owned by a person but it wasn't a personal computer by my standpoint. Uh, was this video display module also used in the Sol, which was a, a machine that you developed? When I was finished with the prototyping of the VDM-1, Bob Marsh came to me and said, now we want you to design a computer built around that VDM-1. And that was the Sol. And of course, he, he had had a, an approach from uh, a popular electronics magazine, which had introduced the Altair. They were the hegemonic magazine at the time. And they had requested a, an intelligent terminal. And so uh, Bob decided we would d- develop a computer, call it an intelligent terminal, and hide the fact that it was a real computer. 
from from Popular Electronics magazine. Of course, Les Solomon, who's the guy at Popular Electronics who was in charge of that, uh, figured it out instantly as soon as he saw the thing and asked me, I was I had been sent to New York to show it to him, what would prevent me from plugging in a, uh, a basic on a, an S100 card and running uh, games on this thing? And I said, well, that beats me. I can't, I don't know the answer to that. It, in fact, I said yes without saying yes. Um, the saw went for about $2,000. But of course, with that, you got everything you didn't get with the Altair, which was, you know, serial interface, parallel interface, um, cassette interface, uh, video, and uh, eight places to plug cards. And the Altair gave you more, but that was about it. So the Altair, as it was first announced, was not complete in that there was nowhere to plug in a terminal. All you could do was flick uh, switches on the front panel which Steve Dampier did with his music of a sort program to run music on it. He showed that at the third meeting of the Homebrew Computer Club, and that was, that was definitely an event worth remembering. The entire place erupted in cheer because he had used the noise, the electrical noise generated by the computer received by a radio as his output device. See, this is the kind of genius that... Uh, convivial design and attracting the geeks uh, got us. And uh, Bill Gates, who was then just another kid who was uh, peddling basic, wrote a letter to uh, the computer or the personal computer press at the time, the uh, people's computer company saying, this program has no output. How can it work? I mean, they had published the, the program and but Gates is saying this can't work. It's obviously a fraud. Yeah, well, <laughs> in software you don't know about noise. You don't know about hardware. But uh, you had to do the hardware to do the software, and for personal computers, and that's what Dampier did. Well, one really interesting device, um, the Xerox Note Taker from a Xerox Park. Um, what did you think of that machine, and how did that influence the Osborne? Uh, it was a significant influence in the sense of the idea of a suit, computer in a suitcase, in effect, and because we, we literally copied the outlines of it for the Osborne. The Osborne one was the – sometimes people call me the father of the Osborne one. I was not. Adam Osborne was the father of the Osborne one. I was the mother. He engaged me and uh, gave me 25% of the company. Uh, to develop the design, plus a small amount of money so I could survive. And uh, he knew already uh, what the computer was supposed to look like. It was supposed to have these pockets in it for the store of the floppy disks and five-inch display screen, two floppy, single-density floppy disks, keyboard that folded up and sealed the case. He, he had all that already. And in fact, that had come from a specification written by a fellow named Blair Newman, who, together with Trip Hawkins, was a name you'll know from gaming, were consulting to Apple, and they had this idea for a CPM computer just like that. They presented it to Steve Jobs, and geez, Steve Jobs told them to you know, never do that again. And the design could have floated around in the uh, computer uh, society of the time. Adam Osborne was involved in that society. He clearly picked it up. So uh, the outline of it 
I would say that probably Blair Newman uh, was the one who appropriated the note-taker outline. There were 10 note-takers ever built. They were at Xerox Park, and I saw one of them in one of my backdoor visits there. It was a graphics machine, and it had a huge joystick, weighed 50 pounds. So we weren't copying the re- all of it by any means. Uh, the uh, Osborne was a perhaps the last computer uh, designed by one person. I did have help on elect- disk electronics drive, that is to say the drive that mounts on the floppy disk, because we had to use multiple sources for floppy disk drives. And so we wanted to buy, this was Adam's idea, we would buy the bare metal floppy disk and put our own electronics on it and save a great deal of money. Now, it turns out he didn't realize that if you do that, you have to adjust some parameters on the electronics for the characteristics of each individual floppy disk. You had to, it's sort of an alignment process. And so it didn't prove to be as cheap as he thought it would be, but that's what the Osborne was. Um, so, but I, I like to say that the number of designers of a computer is equal to the number of crystals in the computer, it's frequency determining elements. And the Osborne one had one crystal and everything was locked to it. So when you got noise on showing up on the display screen, it did not move and therefore was not noticeable. And that made a big difference because there was noise there. But it, they, we, we produced about 100,000 of those units. And it, uh, for its time, was a big seller. I was going to say, what was the reaction like then and the launch? Because, you know, this was kind of the first personal computer, really, wasn't it, that was commercially available and successful? Um, well, okay, the Apple II had preceded it, you know, by, by what is it, uh, four years, four or five years. You can't say that it was the first per- commercially successful. Well, it was the first commercially successful portable computer. There you uh, go. That's the, that's the definition. Yeah. That's the definition, yes. And in fact, a friend of mine, even Koblenz, has written a book on portable computers and they go all the way back to computers installed in trailers and hauled by trucks that the military use. You know, you want to be careful about your <laughs> definitions. The important thing about the Osborne one was it sealed up into a closed uh, housing. When you, when you closed up the, the case, everything you needed was inside there. The floppy diskettes, all the hardware. You simply needed to plug the power cord in. And, and that was an important concept. It was not a, a computer held together by a number of cables. Uh, and most of the portability was manifested in computers being carried f- from one side of the office to the other. It was not a laptop. Laps, you know, it's 11 kilograms, 23 and a half pounds. Put that on your lap and see how long you can use it. It did, however, it was standardized. It was one version and had enough in it to do the job. It could do 300 and 1,200 baud serial, for instance. That's it. Um, It could produce a a, a parallel port on this all-purpose port. And it was very cheap to build. Uh, I I designed in uh, Motorola peripheral chips, 6800 series chips used in a Z80 computer. And at one point at the Homebrew Club, before it was announced, well, it had been sort of announced, but not shown, someone came up to me and said, one example of what you can't do with computers is use Motorola 
peripheral chips with his with his E80 or an 8080, and I just listened and nodded my head because I knew that I was doing that. Those were those chips were pretty cheap. So the effort in the Osborne one was engineering efforts, what I call toad sweat. Certain toads exude a clear fluid when they're attacked, and it's sort of poisonous and noxious. And I thought of that as the sweat I was exuding when I was trying to meet that deadline and meet the cost deadlines, the cost limits. So there's no CRT, no no video controller in the Osborne one. The processor does all of that because built into the Z80 chips of the time was a memory refresh feature. And when it wasn't doing an instruction, uh, it would go do an access to the memory. We had to do that to keep the dynamic memory alive. And almost no one used that feature, except I did. And me and a fellow in Serbia who designed a Z80 computer, as I recently discovered, used the same technique. You needed to have that, oh, by the way, let's go to memory and, and get something out of it sort of feature going on constantly in order to get stuff from the memory to the, the display screen. And so the memory controller in the Osborne One is three tiny, small-scale chips. And the rest of it is my figuring out the state machine and so forth. Somewhere there's a notebook with all that in it. It's interesting as well that yeah, the Osborne One was a start of a revolution. I mean, portable computing is, for many of us, a predominant form of computing today. And the fact that it was such a pioneering product and successful as well, um, the Osborne themselves only lasted a couple of years after that. I mean, that must have been quite frustrating as, you know, a, a designer that the company was kind of mismanaged into becoming defunct only a couple of years after. Yes, well, it was the first big bankruptcy of the uh, personal computer industry, and I suppose one can take pride in that. Um, <clears throat> not me. I designed the uh, the sort of architecture of the executive version, and that was the one where everybody says they pre-announced the IBM compatible version when they were and they're introducing the uh, executive, and that's what killed the market. But that's not really true. There were decisions made to. Well, let's put it this way. Tom Hogan tells of how he talked to the, the, the uh, CEO, the one who had been hired in, the soft drink executive, who had been hired in, and said, now, in order to transition from the one to the executive, we're going to have to basically sell off the, the inventory of parts we have. And the executive, when Robert Jonich said, I've never sold anything at not at a profit. We're going to use those parts to build Osborne ones and get rid of them that way. So a decision was made to continue in mass production of Osborne one while they were introducing the executive version, which attracted all of the, the sales. And so they basically ran out of money. And uh, it, it wasn't the case. I mean, I was there at the meeting, the sales meeting where the executive was introduced. We had a Huddle with, with Adam Osborne before he was to go up on stage and said, all of us executives said, remember, Adam, don't tell them about the IBM compatible. And he went up on stage. And as the crowd was cheering, as he wrapped up his speech, and he said, and if you think that's something, just wait till you see the IBM compatible. Now, that audience did not suddenly fall silent. They kept cheering the executive. 
uh, Adam came <laughs> off the stage and we said, Adam, why did you do it? And he said, oh, it's, it's just a simple process. It's going to be a little bored. You plug into the executive. That's what he thought it was going to be at that time. But really, it, it, it was not the pre-announcement of that that, uh, that killed uh, Osborne. The damage was done from the beginning. My feeling is that after the first six months of operation, organization or lack of it was so pervasive that uh, only you'd need to restart the whole company. But it survived long enough because they could sell the computers. They could paper over their problems by hiring people, and they did. And those people stayed and they cost money, etc. You became a fellow of the Computer History Museum in Mountain View, California. Are you really surprised by the interest and uh, kind of, you know, community that's developed around this old retro computer scene and the pioneering computer companies as well? Well, the retro scene is one that I, can, I, I can't experience the way other people do because I was there when those things were new. And so every time they say, look at this grand old computer, I said, yeah, well, you know, I remember that. I wasn't very impressed with it then. And I'm still not impressed by it. Um, (laughs) So that's the price you pay for being a pioneer. You've seen it all. But it's very gratifying. And uh, and certainly I would never have learned about uh, my Serbian counterpart who used the same technique as I had in, in uh, making the Z80 uh, show video, if it had not, not been for that uh, movement. I only learned about that in 2018 uh, through the Vintage Computer Club Italia when I, they invited me to Rome for, for their session. In a way, it's, it's a vindication of the approach of uh, building computers uh, so that people can get into them. And for any other computer... It would be limited in interest to, you know, technical people who had been involved in it, and the the old uh, uh, hands at the the original company, and that's what would have been all there be to it. But vintage computing attracts young people, and I mean, I remember at the vintage computer fair uh, in in at the computer history museum in, in Mountain View, um, I was introduced to a, a nice young couple. They were interested in the Sol. I think they may have had a demonstration. Yes, they did have a demonstration there going on it. So I said, you know, you know that computer? And she, she, well, I said, yes. And I said, well, I designed it. And she reacted with a, it's like uh, tears came to her eye. She, wow. Her throat seized up. She couldn't speak. You know, that kind of uh, reaction is an honor that I never anticipated. And uh, there they were, basically keeping the saw alive. And uh, so when anybody tells me, you know, well, the company, you know, that company did go out of business in 1979. And the product is, you know, maybe good for its time, but, you know, it's long gone. No, it's still alive. There are still people who, who love it. And I greatly appreciate that. That I hope keeps me young. And obviously these products that you worked on and these technologies that you and your peers back then in these early pioneering, pioneering days, went on to start so many careers and shape so many people's lives as well. I mean, that in itself must be really gratifying. Yes. In 1996, uh, Esther Dyson had published a book and uh, she had her book party at uh, the premier 
venture capital firm, Kleiner Perkins in Silicon Valley. I was friends with Esther at the time, and she invited me to that. And there I met an owlish little fellow with glasses uh, who says, you don't remember me, but I attended meetings of the Homebrew Computer Club. Now, this is not the first person who came up to me and said that. And it turns out, he said, I was an engineer at uh, Intel in 1980, and I attended meetings of the Homebrew Club. Well, that was John Doerr, who was the top dog at that venture capital firm, the top guy at the top firm in Silicon Valley. <laughs> he had come through the homebrew uh -huh. club. And uh, I, I, of course, tried to uh, um, retain contact with him in hopes of finding a, a situation. Uh, but unfortunately, I never was able to speak to him again. So it, indeed, uh, given that the, there was a flow of people through the meetings, you know, 3,500 mailing list for a meeting room of 250, uh, that was 1978. The echoes of the Homebrew Computer Club continue to reverberate today. Well, Lee, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. A real honour to have you on the show. Um, and if people want to find out more of your stories, I know you have a website and you have a Patreon as well, that where you, uh, you actually share updates on there and behind-the-scenes stories of those days. That's right. I have mo I, I, I published these vignettes from my history. It's part of a book that is yet to be assembled. Uh, and they're in, on the Patreon page. And I don't think you have to pay anything to see them. If you want to join Patreon, it costs you something. But anybody can see them. And uh, so there's about 20 or so of those episodes. They're aimed at um, young upcoming would-be engineers trying to show them that things are not quite as you imagine. They're sometimes much stranger than you imagine. And that's, uh, you know, I'm L. Felsenstein at, on Patreon.com, if you want. I have a Lee Felsenstein, Lee.Felsenstein.com uh, website, which is like my long-form resume. That doesn't change very much at all. Patreon, I have to update at least every month. And I've got another one I have to, you know, submit, another essay that I've got to write for this month. Uh, so I have that online presence. And uh, I'm not that much of a uh, social being online. I, I'm addicted to Facebook like many people, but I try hard to control it. Well, Lee, I'll, I'll link up your Patreon and your website in our show notes. I encourage everyone to go and check it out. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us this week. It's been wonderful to have you on. It's been fantastic. Uh, yeah. hey. Essen, as I say, watch the skies. I'm not done yet.